Lord has ordained for us to be here. Um, if you have a paper copy or electronic copy of the Word of God, if you'll open that up to the book of Romans chapter 13. I uh, That just comes across so easily um, to say that. Hey, open up your Bibles, turn to Romans 13. But I, uh, I'm afraid that myself especially, I, I just forget all the gifts that God has given to make those words a reality. I mean, just stop for a second. That book was written over 2,000 years ago for a guy who would just years right after it's written go to prison. Imagine just trying to get a book published by a guy who's on his way to prison. That's not easy to pull off. Um, and he spends the next decade of his life there uh, as uh, before he's executed. Then he writes it down. There's no printing press. There's no easy way to Xerox it for thousands of years. Uh, for about 1,500 years before the printing press, just picture this. There are men who gave their lives. The Spirit of God ordained this to happen. They gave their lives day in and day out going into a room and writing down. One on the left is one copy, on the right is the new copy. And they're just writing, copy after copy. God kept his word for us for over 1,500 years until the printing press. Well, even so, you get a printing press. Okay, that's great. But uh, we got a problem. It's not written in a language that any of us can speak. It's written in Latin. Nobody speaks Latin. It's a dead language at that point. What are we going to do? It's all right, they'll raise up somebody else who will give his life, copying it into German, and then somebody else who will give his life, copying it into English. Literally, William Tyndale gave his life. So we have, now, okay. So now we got English copies of the scriptures. Think of all it took for you to have an English copy of the scriptures. And now let me just paint one last statistic for you. So what? You live past the time that William Tyndale gave an English copy of the scriptures. So what? Okay, great. Now you got it. Now here's the thing. Do you realize for most of human history, the vast majority of people could not read? So it's only a very, very, very recent <laughs> phenomenon that the majority of people, and in, in, in still across the world, that's not the case, but you happen to live in a country that you have a copy of the Word of God in your language, and you happen to live in a time that you can read the Word of God. Folks, when I can say, open up to Romans chapter 13, you have a copy of it. It is there in your language. You have a clue where it is in the Bible. Praise God for His mercy to us. It is a privilege every time. We open up the Word of God. That better not count against my time. I did not plan that. Um, well, we are in Romans 13. Let me um, open us up by reading the first seven verses. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. If you're going to underline, highlight, I mean, that pretty much is this whole section. The rest of it just supports it. That's it. That's, that's Paul right there on this subject. Verse 2. Therefore, whoever... So you get it, therefore. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. 
For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he's God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Let's pray. Father, incalculable mercies have handed down the words that were written 2,000 years ago. Unbelievable. It's one thing to hand them down. It's quite another for them to be this amazing. Thank you for the Spirit of God to give us these words. I cannot believe as I read these how relevant they are to us today. The idea of a democracy like exists in the United States and, and in many parts of the West, in many parts of the world now, didn't even, wasn't even on Paul's radar. But you have given words that are helpful for us. Thank you. Father, I pray that you will give us a solid anchor in the fact that King Jesus rules the world, full stop. It is not just that King Jesus will rule the world. He rules the world, and it does his bidding. Father, let us have a solid belief in the sovereign work of you, our Father. Let Jesus, King Jesus, be on display as we can even show respect to our authorities because King Jesus is in charge. And Father, I pray that your spirit will get all the respect he's due as we submit ourselves unto your word as your people. Amen. So our, our son, he's a rising fourth grader having completed uh, third grade last year. Um, and apparently third grade, we've learned at least his school serves as like a milestone um, in, in the elementary uh, area because at this point, the teacher can leave the classroom without having to have an assistant. Um, but the teacher doesn't just simply walk out, you know, see y'all later, mind your manners. Instead, there's a, there's an elaborate system in place uh, where the student of the day is, is in charge of monitoring the class while the teacher is out of the room. As you can imagine, some students are a little bit stricter in, in how they want to manage that classroom during that time than, than others. Sometimes there's a little bit of a grasp on power as other students recognize that the one in charge is really no different than they are. And so there's at times a rub as to how the, the class should deal with the situation, but, but it actually works. In the chapters prior to Romans 13, Paul has laid out some gigantic truths 
about Christians, the amazing privilege of being a believer. An example of this is in chapter 8, you get a treasure trove. It's just like Paul unloads all of these conclusions about, well, if all this is true, here's what I'm telling you about what it means to be a Christian. I'm going to give you, and I just listed for you there on your handout, uh, seven massive claims about uh uh, about being a Christian. And if you're online, our uh, folks have been kind enough to send you uh, a, a link in the chat where you can click on the handout as well. Here's seven of them. Just quit. Just, yeah. Believers are indwelt by the same spirit that raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. Two, believers have been set free from their past bondage to sin. Three, Believers are the very sons of God. Four, believers will rule over creation one day, and the creation is sitting and waiting in glad anticipation for that day. Five, every circumstance will work out for the good of believers who were chosen by God. Six, nothing, no one, can condemn a believer justified by the cross of Christ. Seven, nothing can separate a believer from the love of God, not even death. Okay, these are huge. If only one of these claims is true, it would be enough to be like a bumper sticker for life. No matter what anybody ever says about you as a believer, you could just point to one of those statements and say, look, as a believer, I would just have you know, I'm an adopted, full-fledged son of God. Thank you very much. But that's not even the case. It's not the case that it's only one of these is true. It's the case that all of those are true. And you're talking about reason for believers to step up, stick your chest out, and feel good. That's a good reason. Yeah, and it, it actually is a fair biblical reaction. Wow, look at all these things. But Paul realized that this actually might cause some problems as the believers begin to have this sink in about who they are in Christ in terms of how they view themselves in the Roman government that they were under. Believers may see themselves as out of the reach of this dirty Roman government at the time. Recall that Paul is writing in the context of the Roman Empire. The Jews were ruled by the Romans and the Jews were constantly bitter about this. And they emphasized constantly bitter. They were, there were frequent uprisings. Jews frequently attacked Roman police. They frequently uh, ripped off tax collectors. The Jews believed that they were the very sons of God. And one day they were going to rule the world. So who were these dirty Romans to tell them what to do? The political climate was a powder keg. It was that way all the way through the ministry of Jesus as well. Paul wrote this letter to the Romans in uh, AD 56. He would likely be arrested just a few months later. He would be under some sort of arrest for pretty much the rest of his life until he would finally stretch out his neck onto a Roman guillotine and be beheaded. Just a few years after Paul's execution, everything would boil over. Emperor Nero would send in his troops into uh, Jerusalem in AD 70. They would sack Jerusalem, sack the temple. Everything was destroyed. 
thousands were murdered and the place was burned to the ground. Now you're talking about a political powder keg. So as Paul writes to the Christians concerning who they now are in Christ, many who had a Jewish background, he's aware that if he's not careful, the very things he's told about who they are in Jesus may actually inflame them to revolt against the government. So what do you do? How is it that these Christians should view themselves against dirty Rome? Well, point one, show some respect. The teacher chosen. Paul answers his question in verse one. What should they do as believers in dealing with dirty Rome? Verse one. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. That's the claim. So Paul clearly says that all persons should submit themselves to the authorities. Then he clearly gives a reason. Why submit yourself to the authority of scumbag Roman soldier? Why should you submit yourself to the authority of a ruthless emperor? Why submit yourself to the authority of a despot dictator? Why submit yourself to the authority of an aggressive tax code? Why? All for the same reason. Because all of them derive their power from God. Yes, it's true that you and the despot dictator are equal in the eyes of God. Yes, it's true that a wild-eyed legislator, legislator who wants to misuse your hard-earned money might not be indwelt with the same Spirit of God that the Word of God says is in your heart, the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the grave. Yes! But in either case, whether we like it or not, they are, hold your breath, they are the student of the day. Why do we have to listen to Billy, the student of the day, who can't tie his shoes any better than the rest of us? Why do we have to listen to Billy, who forgets his, his homework far often more than he remembers it? Because Billy is the student of the day. That's it. Because the teacher chose Billy. We aren't Billy. And thank God, we aren't the teacher. Romans 13.1 has served as an effective help across the ages of Christian history. I cannot emphasize this enough. It has basically been a bedrock doctrine of Christians. Show some respect, the teacher chosen. It's a straightforward and profound principle. Every ruler who rules. Every police officer who polices is appointed for that time by God. No students asking Billy to pull out his teaching license. Nobody's asking Billy to explain Bloom's taxonomy. No. The whole class knows that Billy isn't actually qualified. But he's the one the teacher chose. That's it. Now, you think I'm being funny. I'm telling you, this is how Christians have survived the ages of some crazy government. This principle. 
to prove that. Try to help prove that. And don't worry, I'm not going to go all the way through them. But I listed out for you at least a dozen quotes of Christians throughout the ages, starting from the very first century, going all the way up to the 20th century. These are people writing in very different governments at different times, and they all are emphasizing this same point. And that is Christians submit to the government because God chose the government. Let me give you a couple quick highlights. Irenaeus, writing in the second century, said, For this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers doing service for this very thing. They are whose? God's ministers. Theodoret of Cyprus, writing in the fifth century. So now we fast forward 300 more years. For it is not so much the sway of the unjust, but the constitution of the office itself, which is of God's appointment. Thomas Aquinas, writing in the 13th century, moving forward. For this reason, the duty of obedience is for the Christian a consequence of this derivation of authority from God. John Brown, the Scotsman, writing in the 18th century, says, No man, no such man, fills a place but of God. In 1972, W.A. Criswell in Dallas, Texas, says, Human law is but a facet, a part of the great divine ordinance by which God controls the whole universe. So Christian, let us heed the commandment of God. Let us show some respect, whether it be the chairman of the school board, your mayor, your state legislature, the police officer who pulled you over for going too fast, your federal representative, the federal judiciary, the vice president or the president, submit yourself to the rule, to their rule, because God chose them to be where they are. So point one, now we move to point two. Better to have Billy than to be left on our own. Paul continues. Better to have Billy than to be left on our own. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. This is verse two. And those who, who resist will incur judgment. Now listen closely. Verse three. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the, of the one who is in authority? In other words, do you not want to be scared of the person in authority? Paul says, fine. Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval, for he's God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He's a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, if the first verse was necessary because believers might be over might overestimate their abilities, this next section is supposed to help deflate us some. I believe that one of the reasons that Romans 13 is discounted by many is this. I think we read these verses and we believe Paul is out of touch with reality. If rulers, so in, in verse 2, Paul follows the logical conclusion of verse 1. If rulers are appointed by God, then if you resist their rule, then you resist God. If we don't listen to Billy, when he asks us to be quiet, then the fact that we are disobeying Billy, well, that's no big deal. 
The problem is that we are disobeying the teacher. We are disobeying God. So far, so good. Got it with you, Paul. But then verse three, he makes this claim. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. And then he goes further and he says, if we do good, then we will receive our approval. See, I think people read this and say, well, come on. Paul, I, I think you seem to be living in like a singing purple dinosaur happy land or something. What, what do you mean rulers aren't a terror to good conduct? Could you tell that to Polycarp? When they strangled him only before, I'm sorry, when they burned him only before spearing him because he wouldn't renounce the name of Jesus. Could you explain to him, rulers aren't a terror to good conduct. Go explain it to William Tyndale. When they burned him and strangled him because his body just wouldn't be consumed fast enough, all because he dared translate the Bible into English. I wish if you would, Paul, parse that out to the family of the 12-year-old girls this week who became child bribes in Afghanistan when the Taliban came knocking on their door. Please explain to them, Paul, that you know what? No problem. Rulers aren't a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you explain it to the families this week in North Korea who are going to bury their children because they are starving to death? All the while their dictator is trying to help his obesity problem? Please explain it to the millions of unborn babies who will be slaughtered in their mother's womb all the while their government is doing all they can to make their fate more common and more available. Paul, explain to us again, if you will, how governments are really not a terror to the good. I honestly believe that that's why we discount this. And I think it's a fair reaction. I just think it's a misreading of what Paul is saying. Three reasons. First, Paul never claims that governments are always good. In fact, you're going to see quite the opposite. Second, just because some governments are bad sometimes, does not mean that most governments aren't good most of the time. But there's a far better reason. I believe Paul is making a much broader biblical argument. And if you read what he's saying, it's actually really helpful. Paul gives us a few clues of what he has in mind. In verse 2, he says what God appointed. Now, I think he means the specific temporary ruler that God appointed, but I think he means something broader. I think he means the entire idea of government. I think we can see it played out in the middle of verse 4. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. What is the power to bear the sword? Well, it's a reference to capital punishment. When did God introduce capital punishment in the Bible? Well, he introduced it the exact same moment he introduced a concept called government. 
Genesis chapter 9. So recall, stay with me here, in the first two chapters of Genesis, we see that God created all things and everything he created was good. There was no government aside from the fact that God walked in the cool of the garden with man. When men fell in Genesis 3, everything went bad sideways quickly. Man was set out of the garden. Man was free from all government as God separated himself from man. Man was left, lucky man, without any government. There was nobody claiming government overreach in Genesis 4. Do you remember how that went? Genesis 3 through 5, short version, horrible. Genesis 6 is the account of how terrible Genesis 3 and 5 through 5 life was. Genesis 6 verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth and he grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now that's a pretty bad indictment, right? So life after the fall, prior to the flood, was what life looks like without government. However bad things look with government, rest assured, it could and would look worse without it. Hence why after the flood, before God gives the sign in the rainbow, before he makes a promise, he's never going to flood the earth again. He has to do something to ensure that the world doesn't end up as evil as it did before. So what does God give us? He gives us government. And what is the main purpose of government? Hold on. This is great. The main purpose of government, are you ready for it? Is to keep us from killing each other. I can't make it up. It's right there in the text. Look at Genesis chapter 9. This is humiliating. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now that sounds familiar. Yeah, it's a recreation going on. It's exactly what he said to Adam and Eve. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every uh, every bird of the heavens, that part's new, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. Submission part's not, the fact they're scared of you is. Every, more, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, blood. So, Basically, all said, that sounds very familiar. Sounds like everything that Adam and Eve were told, right? Good, got it. But there's an addition. Verse 5. And from your lifeblood, that is your blood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from every man. Listen carefully. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man. So who's, who's requiring the reckoning? God. But who is going to do the reckoning? Man. Genesis 13.1. Right there. I mean, Romans 13.1. Right there. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man, 
shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly and fill the earth and multiply. Here's where you get capital punishment. Here's where we get the first indications of anything like government. And what does government do? Government keeps us from killing each other. Folks, I don't know what could be more humbling and more hilarious all at the same time. Think of all the time, all the money, all the energy humans spend thinking about, worrying about, defending and creating government. Now realize that we do all of this because it is a gift from God. And why did he give it to us? He gave it to us so we don't kill each other. That's humbling. <laughs> so when Billy is in charge and we're all railing against him, how could the teacher pick Billy? We all know Billy's not the brightest crown in the box. We all know Billy doesn't realize his nostrils should only have southbound tracks. How could he choose Billy? Somebody needs to open up the scriptures and be reminded that if it were not for Billy, we would all likely kill each other. Now, that's a humbling reality. Now, be careful, Billy. Ease up. Don't stick your chest out too far. Why? Realize, Billy, your only claim to fame, you literally only have one, and this is literally true about you, you are only better than nothing. Now, that's quite the resume builder, isn't it, for Billy? Put that on the top of your resume. Hire me, I'm better than nothing. Folks, how helpful is that? You say, Tim, I'm not a big government person. We don't really need government. They need to get out of our way. That's my political philosophy. Okay, fair enough. But you know what the, the, the word of God says to you? Yeah, you better be thankful. If it weren't for government, we'd all be killing each other. Well, I think we need more government. The government's the answer to everything. We can do it all. Just give us some more government, Tim. That would be great. You know what the word of God says to you? You know, government is really just better than nothing. Wow. That's helpful. That is a Christian philosophy of government. It'll keep us from killing each other, and it's better than nothing. There you go. When an officer stops a Christian, he ought to find a fully cooperative and respectful member of society. Why? We don't see on his badge city of. We don't see on his badge state of. We see on his badge as Christian. See, the rest of the world, just they have to stop it's city of or state of or federal. They have to stop there. That's all their eyes can see. You know what Christians always see? We don't even have to see an agency. We see one thing, appointed by King Jesus to keep me alive. This passage isn't making a claim about the value of government. Paul's not extolling the virtue of government. He's highlighting our broken condition. Paul is claiming that all governments are helpful for one thing. To keep us from killing each other. It is a claim about the indictment of the human condition. It is a claim about the mercies of God. All right, we got to move on. Third point, if the man wants your lunch money, give the man your lunch money. Verse 5, therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. 
So you're, you're tracking with Paul. I'm tracking with Paul. Okay, Paul, I got it. I got it. Government's there to keep us from killing each other. That's cool. But can we draw the line when the government starts to reach into my pocketbook? Now, before you go any further, again, can we just appreciate <laughs> that paying taxes was a major concern in the first century for Christians? It's a major concern for us right now. Just think of the legislation going on in our country right now, and we're all worried about paying more taxes. And what was Paul and the rest of the Christians worried about? Paying taxes. I have no understanding why people feel like they need to work to make the Bible relevant. It's quite relevant. Paul borrows straight from Jesus to get his answer on this. It is great. What's the short of it? I'm just going to get to you. Just pay it. So Matthew 22, we get one of the most interesting accounts. They're trying to trip up Jesus. They knew that Jews hated paying taxes to Rome. It's not just they hated paying taxes. It's they hated paying taxes to Rome. That's the way it went, right? But they knew that the Romans loved them paying taxes. So the, great, the easiest way to trip up anybody who had any political ambition was just ask them a question on Rome because they're going to make somebody unhappy. So here it is, Matthew 22. They come on, verse 15. The Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in, their, in his words. <laughs> and their disciples said to him, along with Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true. And teach the way of God truthfully. You do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? You see how they put the question. They don't just say pay taxes. I told you they hate paying taxes to who? Right? Or not. <laughs> but Jesus aware of their malice. Now, remember, this is written by Matthew. What was Matthew's old job? He's a tax collector. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. They brought him a denarii. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. He said, Therefore, render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard him, they marveled. And they left him. And they went away. Trying to tri trip up your own maker, that is hilariously futile. So Jesus, should we pay our taxes? Jesus asked for a coin. <laughs> Great. He looks at it and he says, huh, whose picture is that on the coin? They're all answering, which is great. Oh, that's Caesar. That's Caesar. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Wait. He stamped his picture. He put his image on the coin. Yeah. Do you know how hard it is to even put a name on a coin? It's really hard to put your picture on metal. The man likes the metal so much that he put his picture on it. Yeah, Jesus. Well, if he likes the metal that much, give the man back his metal. He's got his picture on it. So what do you do when the government wants your taxes? What do you do? When bad boy Billy wants your lunch money, brothers and sisters, give him your lunch money. It's just a meal. It's just money. He evidently really, really likes it. So give it to him. That doesn't mean that we can't offer our voice. Good gracious, what an incredible 
opportunity we have to be able to have a voice and our influence to change government on spending and tax laws and all those things. But if they come for your taxes, Christian, pay your taxes. All right, you're following at this point. You're going, okay, I pretty much get Paul's point here. Seems to me like it's basically like whatever the government wants us to do, we should just do it. Got it. Okay. Give them whatever they want. Now, hold up. There's some limits. If Billy wants your lunch money, you give the man lunch money. But if Billy wants your soul, you give the man your neck. Final point. If the man wants your soul, give him your neck instead. Verse 7. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Paul explains that we give to the authority what is due to them. It's key. They can get their taxes and they can get their revenue. Those are owed to them. For goodness sake, they put their pictures on it. But respect and honor, they get no more than they are owed. Respect and honor, ah, they get no more than they are owed. Now, we've already established that they're owed a lot of respect and a lot of honor because God chose them. But it is not. It can never be limitless. Why? Because God himself is owed his due respect and his due honor. If the, if the government ever tries to take what is due to God alone, the Christian will draw the line. Again, bar, Paul borrows from Jesus in Matthew 22. Remember what Jesus said, so brilliant. Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said Caesar's. He said, therefore, render to Caesar's what is Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God's. Jesus points to a piece of metal and says it has an image of Caesar on it. Therefore, it belongs to Caesar. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But give to God what belongs to God. Now, what belongs to God? Well, let's use the same logic. What has God's image stamped on it? We just read this in Genesis together. We've read it. It's all over Genesis 1 and 2. It's repeated in Genesis 9. It's foundational to every part of Christian Theology, we do. We are made in the image of God. We were created and stamped with God's image. He has further recreated us, Romans 8, 29, in the likeness of his son, Jesus. Do you see how incredible Jesus's answer is? Give to Caesar the stuff that has his image on it. Give him the money. It's just money. But you give to God what has God on it. What has God's image on it? We do. He gets all of us. If any government wants to, us to give them our full allegiance at the cost of denying that we belong to King Jesus, we draw the line. If any government wants us to bow the knee in a way that is reserved for God, we draw the line. Government, if you want my money, you can take it. But if you want my worship, you will not get my worship. 
Throughout the scriptures, throughout church history, courageous believers have drawn the line whereby they have given their necks in order to not give their worship. In your handout, I listed for you various places across scriptures. They're examples of believers trading their necks or at least risking their necks in order to not give up their worship. Whether it be the Hebrew midwives refusing to disobey God and perform abortions, whether it be Elijah standing up to Ahab and Jezebel, Daniel and the company standing up to Nebuchadnezzar's dietary restrictions, Daniel's friends standing up to Nebuchadnezzar's weird desire for false worship, Daniel standing up to the Persian king's prohibition of prayer, Mary and Joseph hiding Jesus, or Peter refusing to stop evangelizing. Example after example, believers have willingly faced death, rather face death, than engage in false worship. I would like to think that few of us will ever face such a choice. But let us not be naive. As we have seen, the Bible doesn't tell us to submit to government because of the virtues of government. The Bible never paints government in a pleasant light. Let me say that again. The Bible never paints government in a pleasant light. Here's the record of the government. It's few of them in the Bible. The government killed the son of God. Both the religious government and the political government killed the son of God. The government murdered all of his disciples. The government has since been working to stifle the spread of the gospel across the globe since day one. In the book of Revelation, it is the government that will usher in the final days with a desire to make the Christians bow the knee. Go read the accounts of Satan falling from heaven in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Do you know, and I put him there for you, do you know what the uh, scriptures call Satan, Lucifer, as he falls from heaven in Ezekiel 28? He is the prince of Tyre. Do you know what that is? That is the head of the government. Do you know what the, what the scriptures call him in Isaiah 14 when it describes Lucifer falling from heaven? It calls him the king of Babylon. What is that? That is the head of government. The scriptures do not look at government as a virtuous thing. We shouldn't be shocked when government promotes evil but we still respect it as appointed by the sovereignty of God. We need to live ready to submit to government up until it means submitting to Jesus. I would like to think that that will never happen in our land, that we won't have to make that choice. But there is handwriting on the wall, and we had better be prepared otherwise. No matter how badly Billy behaves, these are takeaways. He's better than no Billy at all. No matter how bad Billy belittles, the teacher's coming back. Billy can take our lunch money, but he will never get our soul. No matter how ineffective Billy may be, our teacher chose Billy. Billy, our class monitor, we're going to submit. For day is coming, and we've already sung about it, when King Jesus will reign. Now, King Jesus, he's going to ask submission of your soul. 
and you will give it back readily because his image is stamped all over. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. I haven't a clue what we would do without it. It grounds us. It shapes for us how we can live in a world with so many questions. Father, remind us. Whoever says they're in charge, they're really not in charge. King Jesus is in charge. And as a result, Father, would we submit to the authorities out of submission to you? Would we gladly submit out of submission to you? Father, give our churches resolve. I pray it. Resolve to be respectful as long as they can. But resolve to say, nope, I can't do that. That alone is reserved for Jesus. And if the need be, we have to stretch out our necks. Give us the courage by your spirit to trust you with our soul. We ask all these things to you, Father. We ask him, the King Jesus. We beg for him to come back soon. In your name we pray. Amen.